0: Hi folks, welcome to Two Feet Apart. This is an intersectionally inclusive space where community meets storytelling. It's a space that is nurtured by vulnerability and the sharing of our stories because they are our greatest strengths and our strongest powers. With that in mind, happy listening. Welcome back to Two Feet Apart with me, your host, Peachy Patrick. Today we have Sam. She is an Indigenous harm reduction advocate with over a decade in social services experience. Uh, She's also a lovely soul that I got the honor of meeting at our first big Two Feet Apart event. So Sam, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, first of all, just thank you for having me. Um, My pleasure. I'm uh, 33 years old, uh, originally from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Um, I'm currently living in Cambridge with my partner and my puppy. Um, Like you said, I have a background in social services in many, many different capacities. Um, Currently, I'm on leave from a job that I love dearly, but the pandemic was really rough on a lot of people. So there was some serious burnout there. But in the meantime, I'm doing volunteer management. Um, Amazing. Yeah, I'm really loving it. It's a different different style for me but uh yeah um i'm indigenous on my dad's side i'm kind of reconnecting to that part of myself which is quite a big journey um a lot of experience with trauma and i just like to bring that non-judgmental attitude and empathy to all my work um i enjoy road trips Um, brings me calm since i live so far away from my family um we spend a lot of time in the car and it just it connects me back with my mom so it's something that i really love doing
0: so do yeah. you do the road trips with your mom? Um,
1: She passed away uh, 10 oh, years okay. ago. Um, So we did. Yeah. She would just on a whim, she would be like, I'm bored. Let's go for a drive. And we would end up four hours away from home and we would just, just do something. I didn't never know what I was packing for, or where I was going. And so I kind of like doing that now. I'm just, I love being spontaneous and my partner's a little more anxious about that kind of stuff than me. <laughs> so I push him out of his box a little bit. Um, But yeah, my mom would just like, even after work on a Friday, let's go home to St. Marie for the weekend. It's not a casual drive. It's like nine hours. So we would get to my grandparents' place like two in the morning.
0: (laughs) I kind of love that because I do the same thing with Cassius and it's more just because as soon as I got my license, I was like, freedom. And so I started doing that by myself. And then now they always say like, when you have a kid, the travel will stop. And I'm like, no, it won't. He will just be coming along for all of it yeah. um so we do that all the time and half the time he like wakes back up and he's like where are we and I'm like you're welcome <laughs> it's gonna be so much fun um so I really love that that's so wholesome yeah, yeah. um there was a lot there that I want to unpack and yeah. touch on um and I'm so excited for this conversation but one of the things that you said is that you know due to burnout and things like that you're taking a break um mm-hmm. from the work that you were doing and mm-hmm. I know that's something that we often talk about, like recognizing that we need to take a break and things like that, but it's not something that people really do. Um, And I think a lot of the times it's fear and things like that. And so I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about your experience with that.
1: Yeah, so to be honest, I'm still not enjoying taking a break from the work because Mm -hmm. I love it so much and I miss it so much. So essentially I am, was whatever, a social worker, support worker for um, a safe injection site. And Mm -hmm. I have been there since it opened. So the one in Kitchener just opened in 2019. And it was six months before the pandemic. So obviously, we didn't know what was coming. The world didn't know about COVID yet. So I didn't really anticipate being burnt out from this job. I loved it. Uh, My job was to keep people breathing. Um, So I was there, their support after they would use their substance at the safe injection site and it was the greatest job in the world and still is and I love the people there the organization behind it is fantastic it's funded through public health but um, Sanguine is the organization nonprofit behind it and that's where all their staff are from and fantastic fantastic job but the pandemic brought a lot of obstacles and a lot of restrictions very well like necessary and intended and all those things, but it just made everything very difficult Mm -hmm. um, to clients that were already vulnerable are already more isolated and secluded from society. It just, it added to a lot of different things. And not only that, we would lose clients at an alarming rate, um, never at our site. That's something that's never actually happened ever. Um, There's been over 800 overdoses and not a single client has ever been lost. Um, which is great but mm-hmm. we would move them out in the community or in their homes or wherever they are and that really contributed to it right you get to know these people in a different level we called ourselves um first responders but the crisis comes to us mm-hmm. uh, we're like reverse first responders <laughs> where it comes to us and then we respond in the building yeah uh, because same deal, we would use oxygen. We would do every other means before we would use naloxone. Um, So we would keep people breathing all the time. And that really gets to you when you get to know someone on a personal level. And then you hear that they're no longer here. And so that really just did a number on me. Um, And I'm supposed to be a support for my clients. I'm supposed to be a support for my other staff members and I could barely support myself. So it was recognizing that I was kind of like a walking zombie, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I would come home. I would sleep after my shift. I would wake up for dinner and I would go back to sleep. It was very depressing. Um, it was very hard on my partner for him to watch that and not fair either um, to watch me go through that. I don't think, um, but it takes a lot to walk away from something you really love and are really passionate about. Um, so I lost a co-worker and then another co-worker and my father within a month. Oh,
0: my goodness.
1: Um, yeah. So December, it was right before Christmas, like four days before Christmas from, again, substance abuse. So within a month, I was much worse off than I was the month before even. And sure. I was like, I can't do this anymore. And this job means the world to me. So I don't want to quit. And I know I never did, but I need to take a break and they don't need a doctor's note. I know a lot of places require certain steps to be in place, but they're very good about just take whatever you need. We know it's a hard job. Um, So I've been off for not quite a year Um, and I miss it so much, but I know it's not right for me yet.
0: Yeah, I commend you so so much for that and i think it's really important that you were able to recognize that prior to because i feel like there's phases like you go through the really like the phase where you're giving it your everything and then you go through the phase where you become that zombie and you're still giving it your everything but obviously Mm -hmm. then you're like you're missing that from yourself And then I think there comes a point where some people just continue trying to push through that and they start to get jaded and things like that. And so I think to recognize that is super important, um, especially in that line of work, because you want to be able to maintain who you are as a person while doing all of that. Um, And I think that, yeah, that's just, it's super important and it's incredible work. Uh, So thank you so much for doing that. And providing that for our community. Oh, thank you. Um, I know that with safe injection sites, there is a lot of controversy. Yeah. And I think that a lot of it is just because people don't necessarily have the education to understand why and how it's important. Mm-hmm. And as much as I can try to explain it, um, it won't be nearly as well as if you were to. So um, mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about kind of the concept the importance um and things like that
1: yeah um so really at the end of the day the only job we have is keeping people alive um everything else is kind of secondary and we always said that too right we can provide a lot of extra services and we always try to go above and beyond but really our only job at the end of the day is keeping those people alive um whether that would be you know, someone alerted us to an overdose happening in the community, if it was close enough, we could attend to it and we could rush out to a bus stop or something like that. And we could attend to it um, or someone in our washrooms or someone in our, in our spaces. We just have to keep people alive. And I think a lot of people have this misconception that we are promoting drug mm-hmm. use. And I don't think anyone ever promotes drug use, right? It's not a thing that we all seek out. Um, right. But I always say that like substances are substances, whether that's a glass of wine or a bottle of wine at night or a cigarette or a cup of coffee in the morning, we're using a stimulant because it helps us. So regardless of what you're using it for, it helps you. I'm not judging you, but there are a lot of people that still hold this stigma for people using different substances because they are known to be more dangerous. But there's still a substance and it's solving a problem that it's not drug use that's something that they seek out it's trying to alleviate something or or cover up some hurt or solve a problem that they don't have skills capacity or means to do Um, and so we're not promoting anything we're promoting breathing (laughs) essentially and um, if we could help with housing if we could help with supplies for the night if we could help with food we did all of those things but we were just trying to keep people alive until their next step. And that could be sobriety, that could be finding an apartment, that could be finding a job, whatever that was, we were there for them. And we never pushed that next step. If someone approached me and said, hey, Sam, I really wanna ask you about what's out there for me for getting sober. Um, We also are working on language like clean, getting clean um, because it implies that someone is therefore dirty. Um, so I will try and always use the word sobriety um in that case, but they wanna decode out options, I'm there to help them seek out options. But I'm never saying, hey, now that you're done using your substance, let's talk about your options. Because that might not be their priority at that time. That might not be their priority right now or ever. Um, maybe working for them. They might just wanna sit in a safe space where someone's not judging them, in a warm space, perhaps, because Um, During the day, there's not a lot of options for folks, so even if they feel safe using their substances, sometimes going to a consumption site is much safer and warmer and kinder for them because hanging out in a coffee shop isn't always an option. Hanging out at a mall or stores isn't always an option, and shelters are not open during the day, so we were just there to listen to them and talk to them like people. We addressed them by their name. We weren't kicking them out because they were loitering. It's really just a safe, welcoming community. And should they want to go to that next step, we have all the resources in the world to give them. Um, But it was never our priority to push that on them. Um, Because when you quit smoking, you might have to try several different routes to go. It's a very difficult thing to do. I know many people that have done it and many people that haven't. And it's very difficult. So if you have to try several different routes for that, I don't totally understand why people don't understand you have to try several different routes for this too and maybe it's just taking a longer time um, and someone that doesn't have the resources or the means or the supportive family or the safe home to go to at night they're definitely going to be taking longer to mm-hmm. maybe change their path a little bit um, and it might take years it might not it might take some traumatic events to kind of, you know, kick them into high gear a little bit. But if it takes people who have supportive families, safe homes, safe relationships, a secure job, long to quit a substance they've been using for years, someone who has lost everything or has nothing, it's going to take them a lot longer. And there's just so much judgment on those people that are just trying to stay alive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah. Um,
0: I read something and I think it was pertaining to like crime rates and things like that. And it was around like defunding the police. Um, and we won't get too much into that, but the point of the post that I saw was that it said, if you want to address crime, the things you really need to address are mental health supports, accessibility, um, people having safe shelter and homes, people having access to food, um, and all of these community supports that a lot of people end up taking for granted. And I would say that that is all also similar and can be applied to substance use because it's not like, you know, that's just the problem. Um, there was another post that I read that, uh, said, you know, if you think about it, if you were faced with homelessness and for example, it was the beginning of winter and you had the option of doing something that could numb it out, numb the cold, you would forget about, you know, the current struggles and things going on. I, I, to be honest, have never used any substances aside from weed. So I really can't say, um, you know, all of the, all of the things that you experience when you're on it. But, um, if you had the ability to do all of that, wouldn't you? And I thought about it and I was like, I sure as heck would. I don't, I do not like the cold. If I didn't have access to warm clothing, if I was hungry, if I was like, where am I going to sleep tonight? And I had the option of being really depressed and anxious all the time or having some form of being able to numb it out. I would probably do that. Um, and so I think it's recognizing that like, it's a lot more than just a drug problem. It's a huge issue with all of these underlying things. Um, and I really love that you guys have the ability to give those resources, but it's kind of a, when you are ready and you want it, it's there, but we're not going to push it on you. Um, And that kind of brings me to my next point. Like, have you seen the show? I'm imagining so, but have you seen the show intervention? Yeah. Yeah. So I would love to know um your thoughts on that because a lot of the time they really do, they kind of skirt around all of the underlying issues and they're like, we're here to help you. We're here to help you. We're going to force you to go to rehab and we're going to kind of make it this big show in front of your friends and family. Um, I would love to know what your thoughts are on that show.
1: Yeah. I haven't watched it in years, but I know it came out at a time when I was a lot younger. Right. So uh-huh. I didn't know a lot of things that I know now. And, um, I didn't have experience with a lot of different substances that I, that I do now, not personal experience, but, um, working experience. So I can't say that if someone told me to do something in front of my friends and family, that it would make me want to do something right then and there. Mm -hmm. Like they are not the, they are not the catalyst for me. If someone tells me to do something in front of people, I would probably get more frustrated with them and actively not want to do that thing, whatever it is you need to go to university right now. Like, you know what? I'm just not going to go because you all want me to, because it feels like pushing you against a wall in a corner and it doesn't feel right. And I, I hate the show knowing what I know now. I did not know that back then. I didn't really like it back then. I just didn't really know why it just gave me the ick. It just gave me a weird Mm -hmm. feeling. And, um, transparency. So I don't think my father used um, injectable substances, his drug of choice was alcohol, um, which um, my clients would always say was much worse for them than anything they would ever use. Now. Um, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. But alcohol is something that people are so dependent on. They don't realize if mm-hmm. I ever told him to not do it, it's not going to make him not do it. Th- that has no It has no drive, it has no pull. Someone needs to want to do something. And it took me years to realize that because as a kid and as a young adult, as a whatever, going into university, learning more things, I wanted him to stop. I wanted me to be the reason for him to stop. Mm. And that was hurting me because I thought, like, why am I not a good enough reason? But that had nothing to do with it. No, he was hurting. He was dependent. He was He was really struggling with his mental health and me telling him to do something. Sure. I would love that to be the reason we all would, but that's not the reason that someone's using in the first place. They're not doing it to hurt you. They're not doing it to cause a problem. They're using it to fill a void, um, cover up pain, deal with things that they don't actually know how to, or have the ability to, or resources to deal with. And so it's not you that they're trying to hurt, but you are not going to be the problem solver either. There are, like you said, there are a million other things that are actually the problem. Maybe if they address that, hey, are you unhappy at work? Hey, are your medications not right? Hey, are you feeling unsafe in your home? Like maybe if they did those conversations rather than you need to stop using drugs and alcohol right now, because we all tell you to like, that's, they're just going to do it in secret and then it might be more dangerous like Mm -hmm. yeah
0: I feel really dramatic saying this but that kind of made my eyes water because I think that we're all in some capacity really affected by substance use um and I know it has really taken a toll on several of my loved ones um and so I think that recognizing that like they're not doing it to hurt you. And what you had said about like, you know, I really wanted to be the reason why he didn't and things like that would resonate and hit hard with so many people. And I think it's, it even comes down to when it's mental health and someone, um, you know, is a victim of suicide and people think, you know, I wanted them to stay alive for me. And I thought that I was enough for them and things like that. I don't think people always recognize that it's so much more than that. You can give all of your love and support to someone, but unless they a are willing to kind of look at and do all of that work and have the resources to help them and have all of those things, um, it's not going to be a sole factor that can make a big difference. What is something that you would say to someone whose loved one is struggling with substance use?
1: Um, The best thing I ever did was set up boundaries and it was very difficult for me because for years I was also my father's social worker kind of on call. I would expect texts in the middle of the night phone calls in the middle of the night and it ruined me and I know it's such a codependent relationship when someone knows they can rely on you and also knows you're not someone who's using a substance. It's a very codependent relationship and It was difficult for me to set up those boundaries, but it made me a better person. It made me a better helper for him in the long run. Um, And it made me feel better. And I would just tell everyone that it did take a long time. So if you're not in that place, it's okay. It took me decades to realize that. You are not the problem. They are not doing it because of you. Uh, They are not doing it in spite of you. And you will also not be the reason they stop. Even if they tell you that that might be the reason, the reason has to be that they choose to stop or they choose to change the usage behavior. So I would say don't put it on you and set up personal boundaries. Personal boundaries are not a bad thing. In fact, they are the key to most of my success. And mm-hmm. that I'm not taking it all on anymore. I felt like I was bailing water out of the Titanic. Like it's just an ever giving problem that I mm-hmm. could not fix on my own. And I feel like a lot of people feel overwhelmed in those scenarios because what else is there that they can do? They should be enough and they are enough, but it's not about you. It's mm. never been about you. So boundaries, don't take it personally.
0: Thank you for that. Um, Okay, I'm going to switch into something a little lighter, kind of, (laughs) (laughs) in my feelings now. Um, Honestly, though, that was was really impactful. Um, So thank you again for sharing that. And I hope that someone listening to this can really sit with that um, as much as I know I'm going to. But how did you get into this line of work? You said, you you know, you've been in social services for many years. Um, Did you ever foresee yourself in something like a safe injection site um, working there? And, you know, kind of what what did that lead up look like for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely not. I never saw myself there. But also, it's not really a thing in a lot of places. Right. It wasn't a thing in Kitchener for all all of (laughs) my life. And yeah. up until 2019, it was not a thing. Um, we have a lot of harm reduction services and we have a lot of people doing a lot of great work, but there hasn't been that kind of ability here. And it's still really stigmatized, even though we've been around, we've we got the numbers to prove it. It's still not really a loved service by many, many people. So I never saw myself there because of my dad, honestly. I thought I would be really emotionally triggered. I thought it would be really hard for me to, um, it turns out that was not the case. Um, what triggered me more was personalities. If someone reminded me of of him, that would be really hard. Um, but doing the work, um, I just I never saw myself there. and I didn't think I would be good at it. Like imposter syndrome is super real. Oh, yeah. I'm thirty three. I still have imposter syndrome every day. like like I said I have a puppy. How can someone let me take care of something this small and dainty? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that when I brought
0: I brought cash home from the hospital. I'm like, wait, it's just us. Nobody is gonna supervise.
1: Who's who's watching me? Like, <laughs> where's your mom? I think about that with my car sometimes too. Like, who is letting me drive this machine down a road at like breaking speeds? Um, so I worked in um disability services for many many years. I worked um, at an indigenous community center here. I worked as, uh, you know, a program kind of like director where I would write and um, create these programming things for different organizations. And it was so far away from where I ended up. And I really only ended up at that because I saw a job posting and I have always loved and respected the work that Sanguine has done. Mm -hmm. And... All of my friends from my from Conestoga that have ended up there, love it, rave about it, never want to leave. It was just, it was seemed like the greatest job ever. And this was new for them. So I kind of took a leap of faith and I texted my friend and I said, I applied. I'm really excited. She kind of coached me on what to wear for the interview. Like, it's supposed to be really formal, but don't dress formally. I know people always yeah. say that, but, but don't. I wore a smash and test romper. Oh my God. Classic. I love it. (laughs) And like running shoes and like a cardigan. Yeah. And so I had to, I had to find a line between comfy, but, but not super professional. I love Uh, it. Because in that line of work, you know, if you're too professional, no one's going to take you seriously. No. So I couldn't, I wore sweatpants to work most days. Like, because if I showed up in like a pantsuit or, you know, something, no client would talk to me.
0: Yeah, I'd be like like,
1: every other suit.
0: Who are the authorities here?
1: Yeah. Why'd you call the cops? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it was just a leap of faith. And um, after the interview, I was very nervous. There were actually six people in my interview and Mm. a few people that um, were peer workers or people that were using the services um, because they want that well-rounded opinion of who's coming in. But I've never been so intimidated because someone who's using the service is the best person to evaluate someone like me. Yeah, And I was so intimidated, but there were six people in a tiny room and then me. And so I would like change my chair to look at them.
0: I was going to say, where do you look? Where do you, I would, I'd be scanning the whole time.
1: Which they were like, you don't have to keep turning your chair, but they also <laughs> turned asking questions. I'm like, what am I going to do? Look at the wall. Like I have to look at who's asking me the question.
0: Just stare dead at the person in the middle, yes.
1: <laughs> but I never anticipated I would, I would end up there. I never anticipated I would be good at it. And it has been my favorite experience of any job so far.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. I honestly, the passion and excitement that you have when talking about it, just like it gives me all the warm and fuzzies. I love it so much because I think for that t- For any social services job. It's so important to have that. Um, because otherwise you don't belong in it realistically. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I love seeing that, that side of you. So what are you doing now? You said volunteer management.
1: Yeah. So because I took a leave and you can't just be off work in this economy. Um, (laughs) I found a position at seeds of diversity and it's, um, They do a lot of different work, but there's a program within Seeds of Diversity called Youth and Food Systems, and they focus on the next generation of people getting into food systems in some way. So farming, agriculture, food policy, um, food banks, like anything related to how our food is divvied up um, Mm -hmm. in the world. Um, And they're focusing on the youth coming out of high school, getting into those careers. Um, So my job is to help our youth get experience. They write a blog for us. They do our social media um, and get experience and educate themselves on our food systems and our kind of our food climate right now.
0: Awesome. Is there anything like, that sounds super interesting, but also a little like ambiguous. Is there anything that you've learned in that that you're like, people should know this?
1: I think even I learned this. Uh, food systems is a very like big term and mm-hmm. is a little intimidating. And most people think of farming, which of course is like obviously a really big part of it. but our yeah. food systems is like the whole thing from farm to grocery store to restaurant to to every piece of our food policy. Um, and so I think people, it's very scary to think about our food systems right now. And a lot of things are really scary right now. Um, But we always talk about the aging farming population, um, and the aging farmers. And so I think that's a little bit scary. And I'm not as passionate about this line of work as I am with social services. But I'm learning so much, and I'm thinking about it on a bigger scale. And I think that's really important, even if, you know, you know, all I learn is, One really big important thing from every job, that's kind of what I'm hoping. And I never thought about the aging farming population. The average age of a farmer in Ontario or Canada is 59. And so they're all getting up there. They're all looking to retire and there's not a lot of people wanting to fill that void. And so are we going to rely on outsourcing everything? Are we going to really push for farming in Ontario and Canada again? it's an interesting thing to think about because we don't often think about where our food comes from. It's just at the store. We just, we just go and we get it. We don't think about the process. Yeah. So I've been challenged to think about that a lot more because that was never my train of thought with that other line of work.
0: For sure. I, and it is super interesting. I, I did work at a food factory for when I say very brief, I don't, I don't think I lasted <laughs> very long. Um, it was not like best work environment for a young black woman but um yeah, I worked in a food factory for a bit and it was so eye-opening to be like, oh like this is really how it all gets from like there's so many steps like we have to get it from farms and outsourcing and all of that and then we get it manufacture it uh process it all those things and then it goes to the grocery stores and so now every time I see like packaged food at the grocery store like a cabbage roll we always give each other the side eye because I'm like I know where you come from like mm-hmm. all of that and don't get me wrong I'm tired of cabbage rolls so I will not eat them just because I had to roll a bajillion but I would never say like don't eat those it comes from a factory um but it's so fascinating to really like know all of the ins and outs and the behind the scenes and I still like the part that I learned while working there for two months was only like a very small fraction of like the whole, the whole picture. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to do another like big topic switch. Cause I know we're coming up on time and there's so much that I want to talk to you about, but one of the things that you had mentioned, um, which resonated with me kind of, um, is that you're kind of reconnecting and learning your indigenous side. And I say kind of resonated with me because I'm not indigenous, but my father was born and raised in West Africa, moved here as an adult. Um, and for any previous listeners, like they know I didn't have a relationship with him and he passed when I was, uh, early teens. Um, and so he passed in a very like sudden and traumatic way and so I think that it really launched me into like who am I I don't know any of this stuff like I can't have those conversations with him and I think as I've gotten older that to be honest has only grown in trying to learn and understand who I am as a black woman when I you know was raised by white parents I live in a predominantly white um, society and all of the schools I've gone to and things like that Um, and so I would love for you to share just a blurb into your experience with reconnecting with that side of you
1: yeah I so by the government standards I am not indigenous Um, my family and I have not been able to get our status cards because my grandfather was in the war and at that time you couldn't be an Indian they use the Indian Act you had to revoke your Indian status to become a Canadian and then you could fight in the war. Dang. So they paid like, I don't know, $10, $15, something like that. But he revoked his status, fought in the war. When they were done, he got it back. So all of a sudden you can be Indian again.
0: Interesting.
1: It's, yeah, a ridiculous system. But um, they call they call it disenfranchisement. Mm-hmm. So my cousins and I are disenfranchised. My father's generation were fine, um, but my cousins and I have never been able to get our status because we are disenfranchised. So for years, my father was the youngest by like 14, 13 years. My cousins are his age. Um, for decades, they've been fighting and trying, and they won't. The, the government won't budge. You can't fight them as a single person or even as a as a small group. Um, so trying to reconnect in a society that also tells you You are not something. It's very confusing and very difficult. And a lot of people in my life, not currently, but in my past, have told me, Oh, I didn't know you were Indigenous. Now that you say it, I can kind of see it.
0: Mm -hmm. So,
1: like, it just created this false sense of, Do I deserve part of this community? Should I be part of this community? I haven't been for a long time. What gives me the right now? Right. So, it's just a whole like, mental thing as well as learning as well as like doing the work and getting involved in my local indigenous uh celebrations and and events and things like that just to just to give me a snippet because the world has been telling me I'm not indigenous mm-hmm. so it's yeah. a very confusing road
0: <laughs> it really is um and I think like racial and cultural identity in your upbringing has such a huge factor there and so now um sorry I I can't tell if I'm gonna cough again (laughs) uh but now that's something that while raising my son has become super important to me because I'm like I had this giant existential crisis that to be honest has not ended and I'm like how do I make sure that I prevent and avoid it with him as well um and so I think it's really fascinating like the more I learn and the more I understand and that's kind of where like the name of this podcast even comes from Two Feet Apart because like you always feel like you kind of have your feet in two different worlds and you're straddling them and you're like but which one do I belong in which one should I be in like a little bit of both a little bit of neither I guess like it's it's a tough call um so I commend you for kind of pursuing that and and working to get involved in that and learn more and things like that, because I know firsthand it is not the easiest of things to do.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not. And uh, being able to connect with local mm-hmm. indigenous advocates and, and people has really, really been helpful um, because my father was young by so many years. Um, he was not really invested in the culture mm-hmm. and it also hurt him a lot. Um, but it's not where I was able to get information mm-hmm. and not his fault but I just I wasn't able to do any of that work that way and his siblings are so much older than him that they're already aging a lot of them have since passed as well so it's just not something that I can I can access through my family so I get that yeah yeah Yeah.
0: um at least we both know that we're not alone that feels like toxic positivity it's still hard even if you know you're not alone yeah Um, What is something that you're currently working on or trying to raise awareness for?
1: Um, I'm always trying to raise awareness about substance use and addiction and Mm -hmm. harm reduction um, because not all harm reduction advocates are equal as well. Sometimes there's stipulations and I'm just trying to encourage people to not jump to conclusions or make assumptions most of my clients and people that we would meet there, um, 90% of them was a doctor prescription that started the whole cycle. Like, it's not like someone's like, Hey, I'm just going to take this. It's I ran out of my prescription and now I'm hooked and I have to find something. And Mm -hmm. it started from, you know, a broken leg or a lot of them were work incidents. So I would just love for people to not jump to conclusions and in a world where it feels like everything is on fire all of the time, like maybe we just should not jump to conclusions about others.
0: Exactly. Um, I love that. And can our listeners, I will link it below, but can our listeners best find or support you on Instagram? Is that the best place to put?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so, so, so much for joining me Um, and
1: for everything. Thank you so much for having me.